On this Friday morning, we're going to take a walk on the Appalachian Trail. Well, at least a virtual walk with someone who's actually done the trail. Stephanie White joins us this morning to talk about the experience. I'm looking forward to this. Stephanie, good morning. Thanks for coming in today. And well, for starters, what inspired you to want to do the Appalachian Trail? Thanks for having me, Wayne. Good morning. Um, You know, the trail runs through the town where I grew up in New York. So it's always been a part of my life. Um, And anytime that I went out for a day hike with my parents, our day hikes would often coincide with the Appalachian Trail or the AT for short. Um, And I remember my parents telling me that that trail goes from Georgia to Maine and that some people hike the whole thing. Some, and, people, some people are yo-yos. Yes, yes, which is even crazier. Do you want to explain what a yo-yo no, is? No, I want you to explain it. Okay, so a yo-yo um, is a person who hikes the whole thing, either from Georgia to Maine or Maine to Georgia, and then when they get to the other end, they go back to where they started. So Make the full return trip loop. Yes, so instead of doing the 2,200-mile trail, they're doing 4,400 miles in that year. And you did half of that, so what do they call you? Um, a through hiker. Anyone who hikes through the entire trail is a through hiker. Um, they have t- a few different terms. A yo-yoer is someone who does it twice through, essentially. Um, and someone who goes from Georgia to Maine, they call a no-bower, which stands for northbound. And then someone who goes from Maine to Georgia, sobo, southbound. And then they have flip-floppers, who are people that start in the middle at Harper's Ferry and either go south first or go north first and then go to that middle point. Now, what was finish. your hiking slash walking background before you decided to do this? I would guess you didn't just do this out of the blue. You had done some hiking before this. Yeah, so I spent my whole life hiking. My parents had me in a backpack, I think, before I could walk up in the Adirondacks. Um, but For the most part, my experience was just with day hikes and trail running. I didn't grow up camping. I was in Girl Scouts, but that was pretty limited camping. Um, And then a few years ago, my sister and I tried backpacking with no experience. And um, to say it was failed (laughs) is putting it mildly. But um, we learned a ton of lessons and have great stories from that that first trip. So... What type of preparation is necessary to do the entire length of the Appalachian Trail? So for me, I would say the biggest part that took the most amount of time was saving the money to do the AT. And um, they typically recommend putting aside approximately $1,000 a month. Um, Some people even penny out the money per mile. I didn't get that technical. Um, so that meant years of savings, really, of like tucking extra money aside into a bank account so that way I could be financially secure during this time. And I assume you're using ATMs. You don't want to bring a whole lot of cash with you on the trail. Yeah, yeah. No, we're not bringing, I, I wasn't bringing a ton of cash with me. Do you have to pre register? Do you have to tell whoever runs the trail you're going to be on the trail? So that's a really good question. Some folks do not. Um, other folks pre-register with the ATC, that's the Appalachian Trail Conference, which is the governing body of the trail. Um, or you can register when you show up for your hike, whether that's at Baxter State Park in Maine 
or down um, at Amicalola Falls State Park in Georgia. So I registered the morning I started the trail in Georgia. So they know you're going to be there. Now, that is for someone who's going to do the entire length, but someone who just wants to drive to a trailhead and walk a couple miles and come back to the car, there's no registration necessary for that, is there? No, no. That's the beauty of the AT is um, it's there for all of us. Um, it's a National Scenic Trail. So in 1968, per the, um, I think it was, I'm going to misspeak now, the American Trails Act, but um, that land was designated public land and set aside the entire corridor, which is now 2,193 miles long. Um, and it's really the beauty of the trail. It's completely unique to the United States that we have these huge swaths of land set aside for all of us to share and use. So of the entire length of the Appalachian Trail, what was your favorite part? Oh, man. <laughs> That's really, really hard. Um, can I say top three? Am I allowed? You can do top ten if you want. Okay. We want to know what the good stuff is because okay. you know what the next question is going to be. What I, was the worst part? Yeah, yeah, I think I, think I could <laughs> well, see that Well, let's do coming. the good stuff first. Okay. Um, well, so the Roan Highlands, which are down in Tennessee and North Carolina, I loved. Um, mainly because I grew up in New York and I now live in New England and the landscape in the Rhone Highlands are just like completely foreign to me. Um, there are these huge mountains, four to 6,000 feet, and they're completely bald on top with just tall grasses growing. Because they're above tree line? Yeah. Well, I don't want, you know, there could be other biological and ecological things going on that perhaps I don't know about, but yes, they seem to be above tree line. Some of them are managed by herds of animals, like the Grayson Highlands, which I was going to mention next. Managed by an animal? Well, to keep them bald, to keep them bald. So they just graze on them? And... Yeah, so um, the Grayson Highlands in Virginia, which was going to be the second area I brought up, um, has wild ponies, and it is... Amazing. I recommend it to anyone who likes hiking and likes horses. Um, so there are essentially feral ponies on top of these balds in the state park, Grayson Highlands State Park in Virginia. And the herd keeps the balds bald because they became bald originally for farming purposes. And then people decided that it was really beautiful to go up on these mountains and take in the vistas. Um, and twice a year, a vet will come and check on the herd. I learned that from a park ranger. So, but, <clears throat> excuse me, in the Rhone Highlands, I believe those balds are naturally occurring. You did a PowerPoint presentation in Lebanon, which is kind of what connected you to me for this radio program. And the very first slide, which you sent me the PowerPoint, had you standing on a protruding rock over a valley. I was loving that picture. A lot of people wouldn't want to stand there because I don't know how far it is down, but if you're afraid of heights, you don't want to do that. Where was that picture taken? Yeah, that's a great question. That's actually the most photographed um, spot on the entire Appalachian Trail. It's called McAfee Knob or McAfee Knob. I heard people say it either way. It's like they do about the antivirus, either McAfee or McAfee. Yes. No one knows how to pronounce yes. it. Yes, and that is right outside Roanoke, Virginia. So it's actually a pretty accessible part of the trail to folks who aren't looking to get deep in the backcountry. Um, I want to say that 
that rock was less than three miles from the road. And I was there on Memorial Day weekend on a Saturday. It was busy. You had to wait your turn to get that picture? You did. I did. Because you're all by yourself there. Yeah. You would never know there's a line. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not as dangerous as it looks either because I sent that image to my parents and they were not not happy. But it's a bit of an optical illusion. You don't feel so... um, on the edge, precipitously hanging over the valley as it looks. Okay, here's the equal time question. What was the worst and or toughest part about hiking the AT? Um, So for me, the toughest part was multiple days in a row of rain. Um, And usually it'd be colder when it rained, specifically when it was cold and raining. And it was more than one day in a row. If if I knew the sun would come out the next day, I could sort of put my head down and trudge through. But, um, you know, I'm out there all day, and I'm sleeping in it as well. So I would hike all day through the rain. I might get wet all the way to my underwear, you know, shoes and socks wet, crawl into my tent at night, raining on the tent. The next morning, have to pack up the wet tent, put it in the pack, and put on the cold, wet clothes from the day before. And there were some days where, down in Georgia, we had a day where it went back and forth between rain and ice. It was down in the 30s and dropped to the 20s that night. And then days, I want to say early on, like in North Carolina and Tennessee, um, where it was just in the 40s and 50s, it was perfect weather for hypothermia. You and I have compared notes about my Grand Canyon hike, five days in the canyon back in 2002, and one of the most memorable things about that hike for me, as tough as it was that last day, going up this incredibly steep trail up the canyon, these rough cobblestones made it even tougher, but once I got to the rim and I had accomplished this five-day hike, I had a feeling of euphoria that I've experienced a few times in my life. When you finally got to the end, the northern end of the AT, which I guess is near Mount Katahdin, did you get that feeling of euphoria of what you had accomplished? Yeah, yeah. And I um, thank you for sharing your experience on the rim with me. I read that, and I think one of your words were jubilant. And I really identified with that, because whether you're out in the backcountry for two days, five days, or five and a half months, it's an accomplishment, right? Um I remember thinking that I was going to cry when I reached the summit of Mount Katahdin, but instead I danced. (laughs) And I'm not a dancer. (laughs) I'm not a dancer. Um, But, like, it was just this, like, physical expression of happiness. And and there were some tears um, a few minutes later when I was starting to process what I had accomplished. Um, And... For a lot of the trail, I suffered from imposter syndrome. I felt like I wasn't a through-hike, through-hiker, excuse me. And um, I I felt like I didn't really fit in oftentimes, or I was nervous I wouldn't finish even towards the end when I was already in Maine. But I remember finishing Katahdin and thinking, I could do this again. I could do this again. And that was, that was a good feeling. I had that also. As tough as it was, and I'm going up the side of the canyon going, don't ever do this again. And 15 minutes after I got to the rim, I go, hmm, I want to do that again. Yeah. You kind of forget how tough it was because you feel so good when you get up there. Yeah. We've heard stories, Stephanie, about safety issues on the trail. There have been some incidents on the trail. Tell me about how you walk the trail 
Were you alone? Did you walk with other people? And what safety precautions did you take? Um, so I left to hike the trail alone, mainly because I couldn't convince any of my friends or family to come with me. What, take six <laughs> months of the life off? It was a tough sell. It was a tough sell. Um, but I knew I wanted to do it. So I knew that that meant going out and doing it on my own. But do you meet people on the trail that ended up being your buddies? Yeah, so um, essentially the first night I met one person in particular who I ended up summiting Katahdin with at the very end. And um, the Appalachian Trail in particular compared to our other long national scenic trails is a very social trail. Tons of people are doing it each year. Tons of day hikers are out there as well. Um, and many people, myself including, form a social network on the trail, and it's referred to as a tramly, your trail family, um, which is essentially a safety network, a social network, um, and kind of an adaptation of the tribe, right? Humans are tribal people. We came together for those purposes. Um, so oftentimes I would hike by myself at least part of the day. Other parts I would hike with one of the members of my family, someone else I met on trail, um, or some days I'd be alone all day. We would usually see one another at lunch or at snack breaks, but no matter how the day looked, we always ended up camping together each night, which was really important. Um, it also formed a network for us to get in and out of towns safely for our resupplies. Um, the main form of transportation on the trail is our legs, but oftentimes when a town would be 8 to 20 miles away from where the trail crossed the road, we would have to hitchhike. I know that's illegal, so I don't know if I can say that on air. <laughs> Just our little secret. Okay. <laughs> and my mom didn't know till the very end. Um, she was not too happy about that. But I would not do that alone as a single female on trail. I would always do that with at least mm -hmm. one member of my family for safety purposes. And being a single woman on the trail, are you bringing defense mechanisms? I mean, I'll be honest and tell you that often when I do the rail trails around here and I walk them, you run them, I bring mace just in case something two-legged or four-legged becomes a threat. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I had a whistle on the strap of my pack that I could easily turn my head and blow if I needed to. Yeah, but you're in the middle of nowhere. Yes. Who's going to hear that? Bears? Exactly. Yeah, well, I had to use it on bears um, once. <laughs> Does it, that works on a bear? <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll get to that story later. Yeah, but um, I also carried mace. Um, and I carried a pocket knife, which many long-distance backpackers would tell you that those are superfluous items. Because really and truly, the reality is that you and I are in much more danger right now when we step outside these studios than we are in the backcountry. Um, but I think it brought peace of mind to myself and to my family that I had those precautions in place. When I did the Grand Canyon in 2002. I had a 27 pound pack and that included cooking supplies and food. Now you bring out all your trash, you don't leave it down there, and the same thing on the Appalachian Trail, but the pack obviously was lighter on the way out because you've eaten some of the food or hopefully all the food when you come out. That's different on the Appalachian Trail. So tell me about how heavy your pack is, what's in it, and how you handle the day-to-day -day food requirements. That's a great question. So um, my pack was way too heavy. 
Um, I'm an overpacker. All right, so what would you not put in there if you did it again? Would you leave some of that stuff home the next time? So I definitely purge stuff as I went along the trail. I would donate it to what um, is referred to as hiker boxes, which are boxes along the way, usually at hostels or at outfitters where hikers can donate their gear and other hikers can take what they need. Um, or I mailed stuff home when I got to post offices in town if it was uh, expensive equipment that I wanted after my trail. So what'd you purge? Oh man, um, du if I carried double of anything, um, at, by the end it was basically one pair of clothes, one pair of socks, and that's probably going to sound pretty gross to our listeners. It was also learning how to manage my water and my food better. I left the trail in Georgia with about 10 days of food, and I really only needed four. And food and water are your heaviest items in the backcountry. You went through four pairs of walking shoes. Yes. Where'd the first three end up? In the garbage. <laughs> I can tell you that after, so my first pair, I put 625 miles on. And after 625 miles in the backcountry, in mud, wearing the same pair of socks every day, like, no one needed to see those shoes again. I had a moment or where smell I, them. Or smell them. Or smell them, for that matter. <laughs> I, um... At a moment where I thought I should save these. These are these are my first pair of hiking shoes. And then I was like, Who am I kidding? I don't need to save these. They serve no purpose because the tread was completely gone. You got pictures. They were, I I do. I have pictures <laughs> of my shoes. They were blown out on the sides, like they were done. What is a trail angel? Oh, that's a really great question. I actually think we have some in the community. I heard through the grapevine. Um, a trail angel is a person who. Um, serves the trail and serves its hikers. So that could be someone who um, volunteers their time to do trail maintenance on the trail, which is so important when you're talking about 2,193 miles of trail in the backcountry. Um, but oftentimes that term is used to refer to folks who show up at trailheads where the trail crosses the road or sometimes shelters in the backcountry, and they do kind gestures for hikers. They will bring cold drinks and refreshments. They will bring snacks. Um, sometimes they'll set up a pop-up tent to shelter hikers from rain. They will sometimes pack out trash. They'll have other goodies like toilet paper or hand sanitizer bottles so you can refill your hand sanitizer. Um, or it, it can come in many different forms. I met someone before I hiked the trail and he gave me the support and encouragement to take the leap. He was a former through hiker. I would refer to him as a trail angel. People who gave us rides when we were hitchhiking. Um, people who carried our packs for us some days. I know. Wow. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> that makes it sound like it was a regular thing, but you could, um, for instance, when I hiked through New York, where the trail goes through the town I grew up in, my dad would shuttle us from the trailhead so we could get some miles under our belt without our packs on. And that that's an act of trail kindness. I love to compare and contrast my Grand Canyon backpacking with your Appalachian trail hike. And when we went in the Grand Canyon, this is the, the, the Bender Boys and also John and Don Drum from Lebanon, we camped at the Cottonwood Canyon campground and the Grapevine Canyon campground, and we eventually came out the way we came in. Well, these campgrounds aren't what people think of around here as campgrounds. They're basically a flat dirt area, and you put your sleeping bag down on top of like a little cushion thing, and you're sleeping basically on dirt. Explain to me what your sleeping conditions, is there overhead covering, are they tents, are they lean-tos, what on the Appalachian Trail, where do you sleep? 
So the Appalachian Trail has a really robust shelter system. Um, the shelters, I had some statistics, um, but they could be anywhere between a mile apart to I think one of the longest stretches was about 40 miles apart. And the shelters are designated areas for camping. Um, I would say a typical shelter area has a three-sided lean-to with a roof and a wooden floor essentially. Usually a fire ring, a picnic table, some flat spots for pitching your tents. Um, oftentimes there would be a, priv a privy and um, you'd be usually the shelters are near some sort of water source whether that's a spring or a stream, river, lake or pond. Um, so that was sort of a very typical setup. Um, early on, trying to get spots in the shelters were really competitive, especially on rainy nights. You had to get there early. Sometimes two in the afternoon shelters would be filled um, because usually they only sleep about, I want to say six to eight hikers on average. Um, but sometimes we would stealth camp, which means just finding a spot in the woods where there like was Like on that 40-mile stretch between yeah, campgrounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You find a flat spot, um, you pitch your tent, and you try to engage in best-leave-no-trace practices. Because if you're stealth camping, there are no privies or anything of that sort. You talked about the four pairs of sneakers, I think they are, that you went through on the trail. Now, when I did the Grand Canyon, I had actual hiking boots. You didn't use hiking boots on the Appalachian Trail? No, Wayne, I didn't. <laughs> um, the trend these days for longer distance hikes has really shifted from heavy-duty boots to trail runners. So these aren't your typical sneakers that you're wearing to the gym or that I would wear on a run around town or, say, if I went out and did a half marathon. These sneakers have much bigger lugs and treads on them. Um, but they're lighter on your feet. There's an expression about weight, pounds on the feet, and how many pounds on the back, but, um, and of course I'm not catching that phrase, but um, having those lightweight sneakers on your feet really do make a difference in fatigue. Um, another sort of reason that this trend is occurring is a lot of these sneakers are mesh and they allow for your toes to engage in some spread so that leads to fewer blisters and hot spots um, that leads to fewer purple and disappearing toenails um, the sneakers are not waterproof which means your feet get wet pretty immediately but also because they're not waterproof they dry out much more quickly that as opposed to the boots that um, would hold on to that water for days, really. So did you have any physical issues on a 2,200-mile hike? You know, remarkably, not really. Um, not or, even a blister. Um, hmm, well, I did, I did lose a toenail early on, and I'm sure I had some blisters. Um, nothing major, really. I tried to be really precautious. Um, chafing is a huge people, a huge problem for people on trail. It wasn't so much for me, except on super hot days or days um, with rain in a row. I would say my biggest issue, um, physical ailment-wise, and this isn't really much to write home about, but um, I got stung by bees, I want to say three to four times on trail. Um, and one time in Massachusetts, I stepped on a white-headed hornet's nest and got stung 
about three times over and had a pretty severe allergic reaction to that, and it was excruciating. Maybe one of the most important things to bring along with you on a hike this long is water. How do you get clean, fresh, safe drinking water? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you filter it from water sources. You're in the backcountry, and so fortunately, at least for us folks on the East Coast, there are tons of water sources, um, and they're beautiful mountain springs where the water is just gorgeous and cold and lovely. Um, but I would never drink straight from a spring or a stream. I carried a water filter with me. I carried what was called a Sawyer Squeeze. That's the brand of filter. Um, I could go through the whole process with you, but that could be boring. But essentially, you put this uh, mechanism on top of a water bottle. You fill your water bottle with dirty water, and then you put this mechanism on top. Unpurified water, not dirty water. Unpurified water, yep. And then you squeeze it into your clean water bottle, and then you have safe drinking water, really. Some folks chose not to filter. That was a calculated risk I decided not to engage in (laughs) because I think most of our listeners know about the consequences of drinking unfiltered water in the backcountry. 2,200 miles. How many bears did you see? Four. Four, yeah. Three in Virginia and one in New Jersey. So then what do you do? Well, um, so two of those encounters I was on my own for, and two I was with other people. Um, And fortunately, three of those encounters... The bears and I had mutual feelings towards one another, which was, we do not want to be near one another right now. Um, So for three of those encounters, usually at the same time I saw the bear, the bear saw me, and we split ways. Um, One of those times I had to yell and wave at the bear, telling it to go away, and it ran off pretty quickly. Um, But there was one encounter just south of Shenandoah National Park in Virginia, Where I'm going to say it was a male bear just because of its size. There was a bear in the middle of the trail, and it was pawing at the ground. I'm assuming it found some good grubs, perhaps. And um, it was right where I had to walk, and it wasn't going anywhere. (laughs) And and once again, I uh, refer to my Grand Canyon hike that was really steep down the first day and really steep out the last day. And then it was kind of level in days two, three, and four. We're on the Tonto Plateau. As a guy who often is on our local rail trails, the Hop and the Airline, the Willimantic River Trail, among other ones in the northeast here, I kind of had this perception of a trail being level. Because those rail trails, they don't want the trains going up and down. They cut them out to be level. I cannot use that same parallel on the Appalachian Trail. There's a lot of ups and a lot of downs. Was there a story about maybe the most grueling day you had because the trail was so steep going uphill? Oh, man. That, that's a great question. I don't know if I can pinpoint it to one day. but um, What about Katahdin? Yeah, so I believe the trail is equivalent to doing Everest 16 times in terms of elevation gain and loss uh, over the course of the entire trail, which let that sink in for a bit. Um, but Minus the snow. Yes, yeah. Um, New Hampshire and northern, uh, excuse me, southern Maine got very rugged, and oftentimes that involved just doing rock scrambles. And the trail would be some rebar in rocks or a rope hanging down from some rocks. Um, And I would say there was a day, maybe in the middle of the whites, where it was just, it was so steep going downhill, I would just sort of sit on my bottom and use my arms to make these big 
um, leaps down. Southern Maine has a section called Mahusik Notch, and it's considered to be the toughest mile on trail because it's a mile of navigating boulders. Katahdin was also very challenging as well. Did you stay at the Lake of the Clouds hut near Mount Washington? I did, actually. And you've been there before, right? I've hiked to it, and now I, and I got a ride up. I didn't hike up Washington. But uh, from there, I went from the summit down, about a mile and a quarter mm-hmm. down, to the Lake of the Clouds and then the AMC hut they have up there. And I was able to, there was nothing going on the day I was there. It was summertime. But I was able to go in it, so you actually spent a night there. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, And there's this really unique system in the White Mountains. Uh, The huts that are run by the AMC, they're above treeline, and they're all backcountry, and they're serviced by crew members. And um, they have something really neat for hikers, for through hikers, which is a work-to-stay which means if you show up right around the 4 o'clock hour as a thru-hiker, you can offer your services to take care of the folks who are staying at the hut. And in exchange, you get to sleep on the floor of the basement, of the kitchen, of the dining room. Your reward is you can sleep on the floor. (laughs) Wow, what a reward. And you get to eat leftover food that the guests don't eat. (laughs) It doesn't get better than that. It really doesn't, especially when you're talking about the summit of Mount Mm -hmm. Washington. And then, as we said, the uh, northern extent of the Appalachian Trail is... Katahdin. And I'm going to bring up something that the listeners can't see unless they had a 2016 WILI Eastern Connecticut weather calendar. But how's that for a picture? She's beautiful. It, it, it's just Mount Katahdin is so beautiful. A monolith all onto her own. Yeah, the uh, picture I'm talking about, uh, you know, I generally don't put pictures in the weather calendar from outside our local area, but this picture is so spectacular. You've got snow almost at the base of Katahdin, you've got a lake in the foreground, and in the center of the picture, you've got the fall foliage there. And that was my cover picture for the 2016 weather calendar. So that's the mountain that you eventually wrapped up at. Now, you do the whole 2200 and change hike from Georgia to Katahdin, how do you get home? You have to arrange for a ride at that point in time? Yeah, that's that's a good question. <laughs> and does that ride go to the top of Katahdin? <laughs> no. <laughs> so when you finish, you have to hike down. And Katahdin is the highest peak in the state of Maine. It's over 5,000 feet tall. And it is it is a tough hike down. And you're beat, you're beat at that point. It's funny you say that because that's part of my Grand Canyon experience too. In many ways, downhill is harder than uphill. I don't think the average guy on the street would think about that. Yeah, all your weight and the weight of your pack is just being absorbed by your joints. For me, it was my knees by the end. And you're Um, breaking yourself every step. Yeah, yeah, because you don't want to slip and fall, right? I mean, this is dangerous. It might sound like walking, but it's dangerous, and you need to take precautions when you're in the backcountry. With that said, to answer your previous question, Baxter State Park is in a very remote section of Maine. Millinocket. Millinocket, which is actually, uh, it was about 45 minutes to get to Millinocket, but that's considered to be the nearest town. Um, Very, very similar to Willimantic, actually, um, in terms of what the town is like. In fact, that's a little bit north of Willimantic, Maine. Is it? Uh, Willimantic, Maine. I didn't know that. Kind of northwest of uh, Dover Foxcroft. Yeah. I've been there. Yeah. So, um, and Millinocket and Baxter State Park are at the northern end of the 100-mile wilderness, which is the most remote section on trail, and the name really speaks for itself. Um, I was fortunate because my partner came and joined 
my Tramley for the 100 mile wilderness and he left his car in Millinocket and got a shuttle down to Monson, Maine at the southern terminus of the wilderness. So we really just had to figure out how to get from Baxter State Park to Millinocket, which I was told, oh, it's so easy. There's a road that goes through the park. You can just easily get a ride. I kept picturing this main New England byway. It was a dirt road. It was a dirt road, and there were very few cars, and you had to hitchhike out. And so um, I was parched for water, and I went to the nearest stream to filter some water, and my family had gotten a ride out, and so then my partner's there waiting, and him and I are waiting for a hitch. We have our thumb out. There's no one passing for about 45 minutes. And then these two women drive past, and we're like, oh, we're so deflated. And then they put their car in reverse and they back up and they say, you know, normally we don't do this, but we just had some really good car karma. Someone helped us with our tire and we feel we need to give back. So they picked us up. Um, and this this is another great story that I forgot until now. But um, they turned to myself and my partner in the back seat and they said, oh, you don't mind if we stop for a drink on the way home, do you? You know, beggars can't be choosers, right? We're in their vehicle. We're like, no, by all means, you had your day of hiking. You deserve a cold beer. Um, and they run into a general store. They grab two beers. They bring them back in the car and crack them open in the car. I thought they were going to go into a bar and grab a drink. But here they are. And here we are in their back seat. And they're just enjoying two cold beers driving us into Millinocket. And we were just looking at each other like, you can't make this up. And they said that if they got pulled over, they would hand the beers to us. <laughs> but they knew how to have a good time. <laughs> Let me take a step off the Appalachian Trail with Stephanie White this morning. Stephanie, you talked about being from New York, but what's your local connection here? It includes Wyndham High and Eastcon, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so eight years ago, I joined a program called Teach for America. It's an AmeriCorps program. And it was a bit controversial here in the local community. But um, it could have placed me anywhere in the country to teach in an underserved community. And I got placed in Willimantic, of all places. Um, so I spent the past seven years working as an English teacher at Wyndham High School. And department chair, too. Yes, my last year, that is correct. Um, and I stepped away from that last year when I decided to hike the trail, which was one of my hardest life decisions ever and guilt that I grappled with for many miles of hiking. Um, and when I returned this year, I was really fortunate to step into a role at EastCon where I'm still serving students in Eastern Connecticut and I'm still working with kids in Wyndham, which is really great. So that's that's how I came to Wyndham and Willimantic. And it, the community's really just dug its way into my heart. I think that's the only the only way I come back here after, you know, walking through 14 different states. All right, so you've done the Appalachian Trail. Will you A, do it again? Or will you, B, do another similar type of six-month long-term hiking experience? Um, yes and yes. <laughs> I'd love to do it again. I actually had a dream last night that I was at the age of retirement, um, and I turned to my friends and I said, we're retired now. Are you going to finally hike the AT with me? And they said, yes. Um, 
I would love to do it again. It is a huge sacrifice financially, professionally, um, things like if I want to be setting aside money for a down payment on a house or a car, or if I want to be planning a family, those are all things that sort of get in the way of a long distance adventure like this. Um, that would be much more well suited for folks in their 20s or folks at retirement age, which those are the most two common ages you see on trail. I was really an outlier in my age group um, and gender as well. Um, but I have my sights set on the long trail this summer in Vermont, which is about 278 miles, I believe, and I think can be done in about three weeks. So depending upon how I recover financially and where I am professionally, I might I might see if that's possible, but one day I'd love to do the PCT, the Pacific Crest Trail, and I'd love to do the Colorado Trail as well. There are so many. I'd love to hike them all. <laughs> and I can tell you about hiking the Grand Canyon, too. When you were away for nearly six months, did you also leave technology behind? And how tough was that? That's a great question. So my answer is yes and no. Um, I had a moment on trail where I was crossing an interstate highway in Pennsylvania and I thought, and I saw folks underneath on the highway sitting in traffic and I thought, my God, I have not driven a car in four months and I will not have driven a car in six months by the end of this. Um, and then I realized all these other things like I've not used a computer in months and done things like worn makeup or shaved or used deodorant. And it was liberating. It was lovely. But to that end, um, I had my phone with me. And I actually... How do you charge it? Oh, you have a portable charger, I'm sure. So I would charge when I was in town. Um, I'd do things like use Wi-Fi when I was in town. But I did have a backup battery. For the most part, I kept my phone on airplane mode. So that way, it preserved battery. And when I really needed it, I could take it off airplane mode. Or battery saving, whatever they call that mode. Yep, I also had it on like low power mode. Yeah. Um, but sometimes on really long days and lonely stretches where I had no cell service and I wasn't hiking with anyone. I would listen to podcasts um, or music, not too often because the forest was so beautiful to listen to. But um, I had a navigation app on my phone called Gut Hook, which I still have here. I could show you. Um, and it is remarkable. I could pull up the app even when I was on airplane mode. It would pinpoint my location via satellite, and then it would tell me the nearest water sources, north on north of me on the trail and south of me on the trail, nearest shelters, um, elevation gain and loss, miles to any sort of waypoint, road crossings, etc. And people could comment on the app and say, you know, this water source is dry or this water source is contaminated. And so it was really helpful or don't stay at the shelter. There was bear activity there last night and they could post the date and explain what their bear encounter was like. My buddy Pete emailed me and he says, Great listen this morning. I've done about 400 miles of the Appalachian Trail, including the 100-mile wilderness in Maine, which you talked about earlier. And I thought this sign best summed up that section. So we attached a picture and I looked at the sign. It's all this about, you know, it's going to be pretty tough. You better be ready for it. You had a similar, not the exact same sign, but it basically gave the same message to what the picture Pete sent me. Read me what your sign said in that same area of the trail. Yeah, so this was at the southern terminus of the 100-mile wilderness outside of Monson, Maine. Um, you had to register because of the remoteness of the trail. And it said there are no places to obtain supplies or to get help until the Abel Bridge 100 miles north. Do not attempt this section unless you have a minimum of 10 days supplies and are fully equipped. 
This is the longest wilderness section of the entire AT, and its difficulty should not be underestimated. Good hiking, MATC, and that's the main Appalachian Trail Conference. Awesome stuff. You just talked a moment ago about dreams. You had dreams while you were on the trail, but they seem to change the farther into it you got. Do tell. Sure. Um, I never slept really well in the backcountry for reasons that I'm sure you and your listeners can imagine. Lots of noises, never felt fully secure. But by the end, when I was dreaming at night, I would always have this conundrum of being in a place and having to get to another place and realizing I had to walk. In my dreams, I would say, oh, no, uh, oh, I don't have a car. I have to walk there. Oh, it's seven miles across town. Okay, just know it's going to take me two to three hours to get there. So my dreams sort of manifested this idea of, like, my legs were the only way to get places. You touched earlier on the time that you were at Wyndham High, eventually becoming the chair of the English department. But while you were at Wyndham High, you were involved in a project called the Outdoor Club. And I'd like to hear about that because it sounds like you really got some city kids out in the woods and exposed them to something they might not have seen without your input. Yeah, so last year um, I got involved with the AMC, the Appalachian Mountain Club, and their Youth Opportunities Program, which is geared towards getting urban youth outdoors, particularly training urban youth leaders to take their own youth outdoors rather than having an ambassador from the AMC, for instance. And I felt so passionately about that work, um, and I found a colleague Hank Lamport, he also felt passionately about the same work, and him and I attempted to start an outing club. There were some logistical struggles with getting that fully underway with Wyndham Public Schools, but him and I persevered, and we actually had a number of trips, one of which we got our kids to summit the highest peak in the state, um, which is Bear Mountain, out in the Litchfield Hills, and we got them on the AT, and I will tell you, um, people of color... And women and people of lower socioeconomic income, LGBTQ, anyone you might think of as not having as much privilege in society is underrepresented on trail. And so for me, making sure that everyone knows that this is everyone's place is so important. And my kids had such a great day. We had some flurries at the summit of Bear Mountain because it was November. They still had such a great day. It was it was wonderful. I saw a stat in some of the many links you sent me. Uh, one of the things that got my attention was that it said 0.0% of the hikers on the Appalachian Trail are African American. And that really surprised me. I mean, I don't I'm not looking for 50%, but why don't black people take that trail? I mean, uh, that could be a whole show unto itself, but it really has to do with who has access to the outdoors and who doesn't, how much equipment costs, who's doing more work on the weekends to pay the bills, um, where wilderness areas are in comparison to urban living, which due to a very long history that our country has, most people of color live in urban areas. So the trail actually comes within... I want to say at Harriman State Park, it's within 30 miles of Manhattan, just to give you an idea of how close it comes to a major city. And yet, people of color are still very underrepresented. And it's also, do I belong here? Do I feel comfortable here? When I look around, 
do other people look like me who are here? You know, that New York thing is a good point. How does the Appalachian Trail get across the Hudson River? Where does it get across? Yeah, so um, it crosses at the Bear Mountain Bridge. I'm from the Hudson Valley, and any of our listeners who know the Hudson Valley well will know the Bear Mountain Bridge. Fun fact, it's actually the lowest point on trail. The trail dips to... um, Close to sea level there, I think the, like, 125 feet above sea level, that's the lowest point on trail right there. And where's the highest point on the trail? It says here, Klingman's Dome. Where's that? Yeah, that's in um, the heart of Smoky Mountain National Park. A lot of us in the Northeast like to think and assume that our lovely Mount Washington is the highest, but Klingman's has Mount Washington, I think, by about 400 feet. Well, Mount Washington, I know is well. It's 6288. Uh huh. And, and this says here, 6643 for Klingman's Dome. So. Yeah. Washington's number two, apparently, as far as the East Coast is concerned. Let me back up a second. You talked about the Connecticut portion of the AT. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about that. I mean, we've got great trails around here, not just the rail trails. Nipmuc Trail is a good example, too. But if somebody wanted to actually do the Appalachian Trail and didn't want to go to Georgia or to Katahdin, things like that, you can do a portion of it in Connecticut. What's that portion like? Sure. Um, I'm actually working on through hiking the Nipmuc Trail. I know it's only 35 miles long, but I was on it this Sunday. Um, I think I have 17 of the miles under my belt. Yeah, but not with that big pack, though. No, 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 no. Um, yeah, so I believe about 52 <laughs> miles of trail run through Connecticut. It's in the Litchfield Hills section. So it um, starts, its southern terminus is right where, like, Pauling goes into... Um, I want to say, is it Cornwall Bridge, Connecticut, that area? And it goes through Kent. Um, Kent Falls. Kent Falls. And then um, it dips up into Massachusetts, right kind of near the Great Barrington area. And it's it's beautiful and a lovely place for people to dip their toes in the trail because you go into town quite often and you can go to inns and B&Bs and delis. Stephanie has so many great stories, but before she goes, I want to hear the story of the necklace. (laughs) I actually thought of that story yesterday on my run. I had forgotten because it happened so early on. I will try and keep it somewhat brief. But um, so early on in Tennessee, the trail does not have privies, which is a backcountry spot to use the bathroom. Um, And in Smoky Mountain National Park, you're right on the Tennessee-North Carolina border. The trail sort of serpentines along the border. So one night I was staying at a shelter with my family, and um, we were in Tennessee. There was no privy. And rather than dig a cat hole in the morning, which is the hole where you, that you dig to go to the bathroom and dispose of your waste properly. And then cover it up. And of course, of course, you're covering it up and you're packing out any of your paper or feminine hygiene products. Um, My friend and I saw that one of the shelters was only three miles north on trail. It, It was where it dipped into North Carolina and that there was a privy there. So we're like, all right, let's leave camp early tomorrow morning. First thing, we'll go to that next shelter, dump our packs, hike into the shelter, and use the privy there. So we did that. We stuck to the plan, dumped our packs at the trail, grabbed our toilet paper bag, our hand sanitizer, and we get there, and there's a line. <laughs> and I'm talking the back backcountry woods of North Carolina and Tennessee. And we're like, my God, we have to use the bathroom. What is going on? And there was a woman in the privy with this huge branch, must have been about, I don't even know, 10, 12 feet long. 
and she is using the branch to fish in the privy and we're like what is happening here we find out her necklace fell in the privy and she was attempting to fish it out with a tree branch and i thought is it a diamond necklace is it a family heirloom it turned out it wasn't even that valuable, but it clearly meant something to her if she was fishing it out of a privy, which we all know contains just loveliness, really. Um, and she got it. She got it. We, we helped her because we were all in line and we had to use the bathroom, so we were trying to speed the process up. Um, Must be special to wear that necklace after that. Sure, sure. I mean, that's a personal choice. I probably would not have made that choice myself. Um, I tried to give her the trail name Angler, and I, I don't I don't think she accepted it, but I, I wanted her to have to tell that story anytime people asked. Wow, did I love your stories this morning, <laughs> Stephanie. This was tremendous. Thank you for coming in today and telling about hiking the Appalachian Trail, and good luck on your trails down the road, and maybe I'll be seeing you on the local rail trails. Definitely. Thanks, Wayne, and thanks for sharing your stories of the Grand Canyon with me. Stephanie White, our guest this morning on 14 WILI Willimantic and 95.3 FM.